Mintifada, Tiramisu, or Blood Orange Libel. Whatever your flavor, Ben & Jerry's parent company, Unilever, finds itself in deep fudge. Our special guest this week, journalist, blogger, and social influencer, Avital Chijik Goldsmith. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode 20, Confetti, episode 20, Jared, of Jewish Insiders <laughs> Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Isn't it exciting? 20 episodes. For everybody who's been listening to us since January, thanks for continuing on with us. We got 20 more in us at least, I hope, God does willing. That, does that mean next episode we can actually have a drink at 21? Oh, I like that. And to all the <laughs> kosher wineries out there, please send us your finest bottles as we celebrate our episode 21. But to get serious for a moment, we have a great guest coming up. I uh, want to get to her soonest. Uh, the big news, obviously, of the past week uh, has been Ben and Jerry's. It's everywhere if you are paying attention. Uh, the decision to boycott Israel, um, their parent company, Unilever, under enormous pressure now. Obviously, Unilever made the final decision. They own the license. They operate it. They're trying to claim they were sort of forced into it by the subsidiary, uh, the, the uh, independent board of Ben & Jerry's. Uh, but they are now facing investigations in multiple states for violating state anti-BDS laws. Uh, they could face shareholder litigation uh, by sort of opening up the investors uh, to this uh, sort of loss. Uh, pension divestments around the country could total at least close to half a billion dollars, maybe more, uh, with other states and communities coming online. Uh, my question to you, Jared, um, how do you sort of view uh, the weekend review on this inside the Jewish community? Uh, the organized Jewish community, I think, pretty much speaking with one voice that they're not going to allow this. Obviously, the Israeli government, very vocal on this. Uh, but still some voices that are sort of confused, it seems like. Uh, not sure if they should be boycotting, that they should be pushing. If Is this BDS? Was this uh, not BDS? Uh, there is some confusion in some Jewish intellectuals on Twitter. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a trap, right? To, to live our intellectual life on Twitter. Uh, it, it doesn't give you necessarily a great amount of time for in-depth thought and analysis. And I'm sure we'll get to that conversation uh, with our guests. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that this is an example of BDS. I think that, you know, there are people who are trying to play fast and loose and say, well, they're only boycotting in, in the territories and not boycotting uh, in, in pre-1967 uh, Israel. I think that's a distinction without a difference difference for purposes of this conversation. Um, you know, there are, there are some fringe left-wing groups or, who are supporting this, but those are groups who have supported BDS beforehand. This is nothing new. This is one of those days where I'm not particularly proud to be from the same hometown as Ben and Jerry. You know, people think they're from Vermont. They're actually from Merrick, Long Island. Uh, originally, it's it's a sad day, and I think it's a, a the next step, particularly in the Democratic Party, the battle for the soul of the Democratic Party when it comes to the the support for Israel, and and luckily or or hearteningly, we are seeing pro Israel voices in the Democratic Party stand up and say that this is not okay, um, and this is not going to be a mainstream view, and. We're going to see, have to see how the legal drama with all these anti BDS uh, pieces of legislation play out. I completely agree with everything you said. I I, I don't know how often. Hold on, that we should happened, we should but, play. Yeah, we should play that again. Should, that that will be like while we're drinking on the twenty first episode. You just have that like in a loop. I agree with everything you said. I agree with everything you said. Uh, no, well well said, said Jared. I mean, this, there is that the thing you said about no no difference between 
oh, this is BDS, it's not BDS. They are inflicting economic harm on an Israeli company because they're selling ice cream to Jews in a certain area. And they're not just cutting off their sales in one area. That's not true. They're cutting off their sales throughout Israel by ending this license. And they're doing it to inflict harm for a political end. That is a boycott. And that's the reason why we've had anti-boycott laws on the federal level since the 1970s. It's the reason why 33 states in the union have passed their own anti-boycott laws. And it's time to enforce those laws and send a message, not just to Ben and Jerry's, send a message to Unilever headquarters in London, not just in Englewood Cliffs, just over the bridge for those of you who want to drive by where their USA headquarters is. Uh, send a message. This is not allowed. This is not tolerated. Uh, and you will pay a financial, reputational, and legal price uh, if you want to participate in an anti-Semitic boycott like this. Yeah, and I think you know one final note on this. I think folks should go back and listen to our our last episode with Congressman Kwesi Mfume, who who really talked about the difference between the South Africa boycott and and what it meant in the in the struggle in that country and BDS and what it is and what it isn't. Uh, I know there are those. Who on the far left who would equate the two, uh, and I would I would point folks to our our last episode where he really talked about why the two things are not the same, uh, as much as some would like to think they are. Yeah, and my last point I want to get to our guest uh, that I would just say is think about intellectually like even if you thought this is somehow like a good idea I'm going to be boycotting you know to cut off sales in the West Bank or something like that the you know Palestinian territories the result of their action as despicable and immoral and unethical as it is, and likely violation of many, many laws, the result of their action is either you've just denied ice cream to Palestinians, which is completely antithetical to your claimed support for Palestinians. I don't know why you did that. Or you're going to try to sell ice cream to Palestinians, but not allow sales to Jews who live next door. So you're actually discriminating against Jews if ever you tried to do uh, continue sales there. So uh, it, it's a nonsensical action to take in addition to it being downright wrong. Jared, let's get to our guest. Today, we are fortunate to have one of the great young Jewish thinkers in life on life and journalism, Avital Chijik Goldschmidt, a writer living in New York City. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Foreign Policy, Vox, Salon, Glamour, Business Insider, and coming soon, Vogue.com. Uh, she's a longtime friend of mine, and we're really excited to have her on the podcast. Avital, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Jared and Rich, thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor. I think where I wanted to start, you know, this week there's been a ton of back and forth over Ben and Jerry's adopting a pro BDS stance and the pro the pro Israel community going wild in protest comes on the heels of outrage over Netflix reality show, My Unorthodox Life, outrage over tweets from Human Rights Watch director Kenneth Rowe blaming anti-Semitism in London on Israel, a fashion podcast host making some cringeworthy anti-Semitic remarks. Are we in 2021 just jumping from one outrage to the next? And are we supposed to be outraged all the time? Uh, well, you know, I don't know if you saw that meme where there's, you know, that popular meme with a guy walking with a girl and then he's turning around to look at another girl. So that that literally is what it's like, right? We're jumping from one to the other. Uh, do I think this is right? I mean, certainly not. I think a lot of this is a product of what Twitter has done to our brains. Um, where we're sort of addicted to the, the adrenaline that 
outrage um, and that, you know, the way that the algorithm rewards it, uh, you know, that that's really what it sort of, I think, sparked in us. Uh, as a journalist, I find it very disturbing. Uh, and partly because I feel that I have been complicit in this, right, as a media person, right? My job is to actually contribute to that. Um, and I, it's, it's a very uncomfortable place to be in. And I think specifically in the Jewish community, we have, um, you know, let it go really far. But if I can dig in a little bit on this, you know, there there is this sort of terminology of this Jewish internet outrage and, and whether it has gone too far, et cetera. I wonder, are, are we just experiencing just a very sped up version of what we've always gone through just because of social media delivering news to us so fast, where maybe in the past we were going about our lives, we waited somehow an organized Jewish organization said, hey, everybody, this company is boycotting Israel. Let's get a rally together. And you saw flyers at synagogue and, and there was a phone tree or something. And it took a while to get outraged because it was not immediate that you knew about things. And now it's just so immediate. I think it's immediate. You're right. And also it's all consuming. It follows you wherever you go. It's in the device that is glued to your hand and glued to your eyes, right? There's no way of escaping it unless you're someone who has an incredible amount of discipline and does not exist online. Um, you are, you are seeing this constantly, you're bombarded by it. And not only that, I think you're sort of constantly pushed to have a take on something, to have an opinion, to make a statement, right? I sometimes have people reach out to me say, you know, well, I noticed that you didn't post something about X outrage du jour. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a politician. I'm not, a, I don't see myself as that sort of a public figure. I'm not going to respond to absolutely everything that the Jewish world or the larger world is losing its mind over. But social media has sort of has convinced us, I think of the sort of the New Yorker uh, writer at the New Yorker recently called this main character energy, where we are all main characters in this big narrative and we all have to have our takes. We all have to have our positions. Uh, you know, this the Netflix debacle this past week or two weeks, uh, has shown that to me very specifically as a member of the Orthodox community where I was bombarded by, you know, Orthodox Jews who want to write about it and want to post about it. And what do I think of their op-ed? Literally every day I was reading op-ed takes on this Netflix show that I still have not watched. Um, but, you know, and, and the fact that I'm part of me is really happy. Part of me is really happy that people feel engaged, that people are, are writing, are thinking about things, are, are critiquing. But at the same time, it, it does feel very extreme. Uh, and it almost feels like, well, do we, do you have a life offline? You know, have you watched my unorthodox life? I watched 15 minutes so far. Oh, that is like the common answer. That's, that's my answer. I got to 20 <laughs> minutes. I, I, I like, I can't, I can't keep going. People are telling me either they all stopped at 15, 20 minutes or they just like don't know why, but they keep going through the train wreck. Like I, I, I'm not a person who enjoys watching train wrecks. I, you know, in, in, in Judaism, there's a concept of bittel Torah. It's a nullification of Torah. It's time you could be spent spending, learning, studying. And that's how I feel about this, too. Um, I watched the 15 minutes where they go to Muncie in the second episode and they go to the grocery store that I actually shop in. So I was curious about how that played out. Um, it, it played out as you would expect it. What, what should leaders, is this okay? Is this a good thing? Should we be doing something about this lurching from outrage to outrage? I mean, I think it's detrimental to our psyche. I, I think it, you know, I think people have literally lost their minds sometimes. And I have seen colleagues in the media go this direction where 
they they start to look at the world through the lens of Twitter, right? Uh, and I think people sort of talk about those who do that through the lens of like, let's say Instagram, where you curate and everything really make everything really pretty. The lens of Twitter forces you to think about everything in sort of black and white terms um, and absolutism. Uh, you know, Julia Gallup calls this the soldier mindset, where you allow beliefs to turn into an identity. Um, and and I think that is, I mean, certainly it's it's uh, it's toxic. I think for the larger Jewish community, I've definitely seen that in I think the wider Orthodox community this past year, uh, where people were sort of pushed to their limits uh, due to the pandemic, due to the heated political climate, uh, and it and it has really caused strife in families and communities. I mean, I say this as a rabbi's wife. We have gotten people even pre-pandemic. We had people telling us, uh, you know. After a Shabbat dinner, a beautiful catered Shabbat dinner in the synagogue, afterwards they would walk out and they would say, thank you so much, Rabbi and Rebetzin, but, you know, next time, never seat us next to people of the other side of the political audience. I've literally had that happen several times. And and oh. and I think I think that social media outrage has contributed to it, right? We've always had strong partisan identities. But that need for that outrage and the way that that outrage has seeped into our identities uh, is is very troubling. Uh, and frankly, it's also partly why I, you know, I left my job at the forward. I felt like, and I think why there was really sort of an exodus in the last half year um, of journalists and publications where many of us feel like we were being sort of assigned to, to contribute to this, really, to go in this direction where everything becomes a hot take and everything is an 800-word quick fix uh, nothing is meaningful. Nothing is thoughtful. Uh, it's it's very troubling. I think it it affects media, affects the way we consume information, and also sort of larger civil discourse. How do we try to distinguish between outrages of the month, right, where we're getting ourselves worked up and maybe we're losing focus, we're we're doing too many things, versus something where no, this this is a true outrage. Like how, how, you know, if if we if we just get into sort of outrage um, tiredness, right? We're just, we don't like outrages anymore. We want to shut it off. Will we miss the true outrages? Like, will will we, you know, are, should we not encourage people still to be looking at like, for me, I am outraged by Ben and Jerry's. I think we should be outraged. This is a major consumer brand. It's well known, has major potential detriment. You know, if it's not pushed back on for others to follow suit, if it's, you know, in vogue to do this, um, but where do we figure out this is a, a good outrage? This is not a good outrage. Listen, I think most of these issues, most of these outrages we just mentioned, right? Ben and Jerry's, uh, the Netflix show, uh, fashion podcast with Rachel Mondi are all different, interesting examples. And, and I think all of them have merit. I think the question is how we express that outrage. Uh, you know, what, what language we use around it? What do we actually do about it? Um, you know, I think, a lot of the tweets I see in the Jewish sort of media and political activist space are, um, you know, are kind of emotional and hysterical. And I don't, you know, and I probably am to blame as well. I'm not saying I'm not myself that way. Uh, and I think we want to try to avoid that. I, I really try to look at the world more and more as the sold sort of, we have the option to be a soldier or a scout. Right. And, and, we have to try as hard as we can to be scouts about all of this. And it's okay to have a take. You should have an opinion on things. But to express it in a thoughtful way that is not about the likes and the tweets per se. Uh, I, to, I, you know, to my mind, I think that's important. I know that that's sort of, that's, uh, 
emotional activists who need who need that attention would would push back against that. But for me as a writer, I feel like that's that's what I try to at least aspire to. So obviously, as Jerry mentioned at the top, Ben and Jerry is topping the week, um, for, you know, for sure, probably will consume us for a little bit. What is your take uh, on it? What, what does it mean right now as far as your reactions you're seeing from influencers um, within the Jewish community? Um, you have traditional pro-Israel voices, organized Jewish organizations expressing, you know, their outrage, pushing back. You have some on the left who are trying to legitimize it, rationalize it, say, well, maybe this isn't BDS, maybe this is legitimate, et cetera. Um, you know, your, your sort of quick take right now on, on where we're at. I just gave you my whole explanation why I don't like quick takes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, give, give us your in-depth that fits into this podcast. Yeah, give us your slow take. <laughs> it won't be so in-depth. Um, listen, I think it's troubling, as you said, specifically because of the the precedent that it sets, right? Um, I think what one thing I'm uh, not troubled by, but I'm sort of befuddled by is the, you know, the the ice cream focus, the pictures of ice cream tubs and the garbage, right? Um, it's very minute and we're not sort of zooming out to talk about, well, this is really, you know, this is a Unilever issue. Um, are we boycotting all of Unilever? Is that what we're arguing for? And maybe you want to argue for that, but then let's talk about it in that way. I see some people doing that, but others are sort of really just kneeling into the, you know, the, the chocolate fudge piece. Um, and, and that is, again, a, a, I think a, a product of that need for that, for that immediate outrage and that, uh, you know, the likes and the retweets. Can I ask you, uh, the, the nerd lawyer in me wants to know, there was a story out of Australia that one of the kosher certifying bodies has decided to yank their their certification, their, their hexure from Ben & Jerry's just because of this decision alone. And I'm far from a rabbinical scholar, um, but it seems to me that, you know, being kosher is a thing that exists within four walls and, and politics is not one of the, those things, but but I have two people on the podcast who are way more halakhically educated than I am, so feel free to shoot me down on that one. I, I, I'm not a rabbi; I just play one on TV. Um, so <laughs> that's I, right. That's uh, and, right. And if Kuf K is listening, I was talking about Avital. If, if Kuf K is listening, I support uh, pulling the uh, the hexer, but I but I defer. I defer to our guest. Uh, I don't support or or reject. I think kashrus is all about politics. I think the way the kosher industry is structured is is to be political um and you know and to be focused on where the dollar is so or whatever you know the australian dollar is so <laughs> um i think it's not surprising uh and anyone who sort of knows how the industry works sort of it's not i don't think it's surprising right like we see uh cautious strips from uh you know businesses restaurants food production companies that for reasons other than specifically kashrut uh, many times. many Usually it's sort of political and it's, uh, you know, a relationship was destroyed there. Uh, but this is not something new. Uh, of course, I think it is concerning because kashrut should not be about that. But the cynic in me is sort of like, yeah, that's to be expected. And do you think there's going to be, we're going to see more of that uh, in the United States? Do you think you see the OU go there and, and other kosher certifying bodies that are going to yank their certification? Or is this an overseas thing? I would be surprised to see the OU go in that direction. Uh, Rabbi Dinak, I think, tries to stay far away from those sorts of uh, disputes. And I think they've, they've kept a sort of a very apolitical uh, thing as you know, in their cost division. Uh, so I do think it's an overseas 
thing. I think it also seeing the outrage and response to it. I, I doubt there will be other countries that will do the same. I, I do think though this is probably a unique data set, right? Like it's not we have that many consumer brands with Kashrut certification that are involved in boycotts of Israel. This is popped up. You know, it's unlikely that it's replicated given the mass pushback that Unilever is seeing. I think Unilever C-suite right now is trying to figure out how do we get out of this mess. Um, so whether they do or not, I, I, you know, there is something of a difference between like, okay, somebody did an ad on some issue you don't like, or, you know, I know there's been issues of like, oh, well, animal treatment and there's other causes that might say environmentalism. Should we take that into account within the broader halakha of our certification? This is like a case where, at least from, from my view, you have a company that is intentionally trying to inflict harm on other Jews in Israel. And so I just think it's a unique type of emotional case where if you don't take into that account, like where's the slippery slope, right? Like if they fired all their Jewish employees, like they, they keep their kosher because the ingredients are good. Like where does it end? Uh, Rich, uh, I, I, I mean, uh, we both agree that BDS is wrong and it's not good for the peace process. It's not good for Jews. It's not good for Israelis. It's not good for Palestinians. But it's, this is a political move but, uh, about something that's not supposed to be about politics. But it's not like a statement, right? They didn't just make a statement. They're doing something to harm. That's all. That's all. That's the difference. Yeah, but it has nothing to do well, with let, 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 let tell, yeah. No, I, I think you just want to be. I would be careful about language. I think inflict harm is is a sort of broad brushstroke. I think it normalizes certain rhetoric and and actions, right? And that can be potentially harmful. And I and I believe that to be true, right? I think the attacks we saw in the spring in reaction to what was going on in Israel um, really kind of proved that point, right? That 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 sort of um, hatred and normalized rhetoric can cause real life harm. Um, and I agree with you that that's troubling, but I think you just want to be careful about sort of saying inflict harm directly. Economic harm, economic harm. Uh, I want to come back to my unorthodox life just for a moment. Um, there seems to be, it's not the first time we've suddenly seen a Netflix show or movie or, or some sort of streaming service do something to feature the Orthodox community, uh, be controversial. We've had a couple of them. We've also seen just Israeli shows uh, like Shtisel just like become very popular in vogue. Um, is there something going on in like the broader body politic of America where Orthodox Jewry is interesting, is selling? I mean, what, what is it about it? So I have felt for a very long time that orthodoxy specifically is interesting to the secular reader in a sort of voyeuristic way because it is one of the last vestiges of a very obviously sort of rigid society where gender and class play big roles. Uh, and, and I think, you know, that is the thing that keeps drawing people back, right? You don't you can't really create the same sort of drama and conflict in a society that is not uh, sort of structured in this way around these rules, around restriction, around, let's say, gender segregation or conformity, right? It, it does create very interesting potential stories. Uh, I don't think they do those stories justice, usually, uh, but I think that sort of is the core thing. I don't think it's necessarily anti-Semitism or, um, you know, something about the Jewishness per se. I think there's a lot of fascination with, you know, the Amish or the Mormon as well. Uh, but it is interesting to watch. And it's also interesting to really compare 
the way that it has played out in America and the way it has played out in Israel and cinema specifically, right? In Israel, I find, and I've written on this before, uh, the the art that is coming out of Israeli film and TV on the Orthodox community is far more interesting and I think far more authentic. So you have Shtisel, but you, you have other films like To Fill the Void by Rama Borstein, or this uh, TV show, actually, the second season just came out called Shabbat Nikim by Eliran Malka, which is an absolute must-watch. If you enjoyed Shtisel, you must watch Shabbat Nikim. And as I understand, it should be coming out soon with English subtitles on one of the streaming platforms. Uh, these shows really sort of are created by those who really grew up in the Orthodox community or are still Orthodox uh, and, and are able to really tap into human life inside the community, right? The struggles. Shabbatni came is about a bunch of sort of gangster yeshiva boys. Uh, they're sort of a fringe of the yeshiva and how they're sort of coming into adulthood and how they're dating, they're being set up, right? all types of girls and they're getting into trouble with the Rosh Yeshiva and they're living in an apartment off campus and there are all these sorts of really fun, interesting dilemmas that appear and they're not, they may be struggling with religion, they may be struggling as any young men I think might be with their place in society, but they're still there, like they're following the uniform and I think that's what's so interesting and we find much less of that in the States. I think that's largely because Hollywood is very distant from you know, Orthodox Jewish communities in a different way. In Israel, you can't, you know, the secular and Orthodox are much more intertwined. Uh, in the States, it's much, there's a much bigger gap. So I was going to ask you about that. Do you think that this gap, because a lot of, a lot of the folks uh, in the entertainment industry are Jewish, right? There are a lot of prominent Jews who are producing these things, are directing yeah. these things, working on these things. Does it speak to a lack of understanding and a, and a continuing widening gulf between more secular Jews and Orthodox Jews in America? You hit the nail on the head, 100%. I, that's my belief. Uh, I will say this as sort of an Orthodox Jew who has spent some years in secular, very kind of liberal Jewish media. That was how I felt myself. Um, there was just this huge chasm between us uh, in our Jewish experiences and what sort of defined our Judaism. Uh, you know, for me, my Judaism is not defined by bagels and locks, and it's not about summer camp, right? It's my all, it's my entirety of my life. It's every single day. It's when I wake up in the morning and I say a blessing, right? It's when I go to sleep and I say Shema with my kids. It's my entire day in between. Um, and, and I think that's true for most sort of Orthodox Jews, it's, it's, it's a, it's a constant way of life. And, and there's a very, unfortunately there, I think there is a lot of misunderstanding for both sides for sure uh, on this. And it's, I think it's just very hard for a secular person to really tap into the religious experience. I think, I think this is true by the way, in journalism, if we're doing, talking about journalism on the religious community, it's very hard for a secular journalist to really understand a religious person you know, that a person is actually, actually believes that they are speaking to a divine being when they pray every single day, right? Or that they cannot touch that light switch on Shabbat because there is this divine law that they are not allowed to touch it, right? Those, those rules and the reasons we do them, the reasons we keep them, the rituals that really sort of permeate our life, it's very hard for someone outside that community to understand it uh, and to really sort of tell that story. Any thoughts on how maybe we bridge that gap? I think... You know, I see these things from sort of inside the Orthodox community, and I I don't want to preach to those sort of outside, but I as an Orthodox Jew feel that it is my 
responsibility to be able to try to bridge that gap as much as possible. I've tried to do that in my journalism in my very tiny individual way, uh, sort of tell stories of real Orthodox Jews, uh, you know, who struggle with, with, you know, different aspects of their lives, but are choosing this way of life. And there are clear reasons for why they choose this code of values. An example of that is my story this past week in foreign policy, profiling Rifka Roberts. You know, here's a Haredi woman who had 12 children, right, who really, quote unquote, did everything right. And here she is, the chief of staff of the outgoing president, former President Rivlin, um, and the sort of this prominent backroom player in Israeli politics, and yet she cannot run for a party that actually represents her community because those parties do not allow women to run, right? And she's accepting that at the same time she tells me in an interview, that's going to change. One day that's going to change. One day they're going to let women run. So you have this religious person who is fervently religious and struggles with an aspect of that sort of human interpretation of religion, but she's still there. And I think that's what's so interesting. And that's one thing that I really try to do in my stories. Um, you know, I think on a sort of broader communal level, I think we could do better as a community in telling those stories and being honest about some of the difficult parts uh, that society and that politics in this community sort of uh, create. How, how do we get more storytellers, I guess, is the question, right? More content creators. Um... It, does it need to be in the in the schools and the synagogues? I mean, who who's responsible for encouraging and creating that? It's so funny. I actually got a call last week from one of from a big Orthodox organization. They asked me for my take, and you know, should we put out a statement to the Netflix show? What should we do about it? And I said, please don't put out a statement responding to a Netflix show. Um, maybe instead consider creating a fund that offers grants to young Orthodox filmmakers who have ideas, who have the talents, who have the skills, or maybe we have to start earlier. You're right. Maybe we have to start offering seminars. We have to start investing in this. And it's troubling to me because we are a community that thankfully has so many resources, right? We invest a lot into, uh, you know, so many other projects and creating a creative class within the community, number one, and number two, also creating a culture in the community that celebrates that creative class, even when they speak honestly about their experiences, I think is really important. Um, I mean, I've been sort of advocating and arguing for this for years. I hear from a lot of community leaders, yeah, yeah, you know, you're right. So we'll see if that ever happens. But for sure, it's something we need to do. I taught in Stern uh, for about five years. I taught journalism. And one of the most important things I taught my students was, was really this, the importance of telling your stories most of them Orthodox women, um, and we could do better. We could, we could. You're right. It could start in school as well. So, to that end, uh, at least in my mind, you are one of the great Orthodox feminists in this world. Uh, you wrote about one in Foreign Policy this week. Um, does that ever get uncomfortable for you? You know, you're 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 a journalist. You're a feminist. You're the wife of a prominent rabbi. Uh, that's got to be take some threading of the needle to, to be all those things at once. Yes. I have learned to thread a needle very carefully over the years. I've definitely made mistakes. Um, you know, one thing interesting that I read recently, I read Shuli Rubin Schwartz's book called The Rabbi's Wife. It's a history of about a century's worth of American history, looking at rabbi's wives across denominations. Of course, these wives across denominations share very similar experiences and challenges. Uh, and, and what's so interesting is reading these women's diaries and letters over the years. And the thing that she points out is that many of these women often turn to writing 
as their sort of pulpit, uh, which was sort of, I thought I was so special. No, I'm not. <laughs> there are many rabbis' wives who are great writers, and it's actually kind of reassuring. Um, yeah, it's very uncomfortable because, uh, you know, there's always sorts of, there are attacks from both sides, I think, uh, from within the religious community, of course, I'm too out there, I'm too feminist, I'm talk, I talk too much about issues. And from the secular standpoint, there's this constant sort of, well, why are you still religious? You're still doing that long sleep thing? You know, I get that all the time from people. Um, and yeah, and I think that sort of goes back to that point about telling stories, honestly, that if we don't sort of normalize that the, I think the vast majority of the Orthodox community in America today, and this is a really big statement, but I think the vast majority live in those tensions in some way or another, not necessarily on gender, but the, t- the tensions of majority and tradition. And we see that in all aspects of life, right? And we don't normalize that enough. Um, so there, so when you're that one weird person who's talking about it, people sort of look at you in shock. So you've uh, outed yourself as a Republican on Reddit. Um, but you've also talked about the fact that Donald Trump had radicalized you. Uh, speaking of threading the needle, does that get, ever get awkward uh, in shul at Kiddush as somebody who writes about this in a community that, that supported the former president pretty significantly? Um, I wouldn't say the community, you know, supported the president, our specific community, I would say is pretty divided. Um, you know, it is Manhattan. So it is a little bit different from other red, more red areas. Uh, but we definitely had a vocal group that supported that, uh, the former president. And it was extremely uncomfortable. There were moments where I remember like the night before publishing an article, an op-ed, you know, we, my husband and I had this sort of big conversation about whether I was ready to come out with it, you know, and what it's going to do to us. And is it going to affect his job? And are, you know, lay leaders going to be upset with me about it? You know, that's the awkwardness of being a rabbi's wife, right? I'm not an employee of the synagogue, so I technically should be able to write whatever I want in, you know, a free society. But at the same time, um, you know, I'm still affiliated and people feel like they don't want to necessarily see political views from a clergy wife. So uh, there were many, many times where the, things were uncomfortable. I remember, you know, over the years at Kiddush specifically, people, that was really where all the drama went down. People would walk up to me and, and sort of say things. Um, always goes down to Kiddush. Always goes down to Kiddush. Always. <laughs> and the funny thing is that I am like really strictly pretty much like no politics rule at, in shul. I don't want to talk about it in shul. Even if I agree with you, like, let's, we'll take it outside. Like, I don't, that's not my job here. Um, you know, and I'm smiling and wishing everyone a good Shabbos. And then suddenly someone walks over and like attacks me for something I tweeted that week. Um, so that was, it was an interesting experience. And I'm really grateful that, you know, I hope this has passed. I really do. I don't know. Uh, certainly Corona sort of, you know, the year away from Shul more or less has, has actually sort of cooled tempers, I think. Uh, but I, it, it was a very uncomfortable position to be in. That's a perfect segue. Um, talking about coronavirus and Shoal, you know, what was that like? Reflect on it. Uh, Manhattan, Rebitson's life uh, going in through COVID, obviously, I'm sure congregants affected by it. Um, what was it like from a pastoral perspective? How have you changed? How has the community changed? Wow, that's a big question. I only ask big questions here. I only ask Rich, big Rich, Rich is think, thinks I'm big no thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think back to March 2020, and here it was 
it was pretty traumatizing in a ghost town city, uh, the first hit and um, sort of watching my husband really try to help and deal, you know, help, help families really deal with what was going on from the most extreme, you know, unfortunately we lost, we lost uh, members or, or mem- family members of members uh, helping people cope with that. We had many people who were ill, some were hospitalized, uh, getting food to the homebound, right? And then you had sort of a little bit what we would call more mundane, but very serious, right? In normal life, people losing their jobs, people sort of, you know, deciding to leave the city. We had many young families who left, uh, some temporarily, some permanently. For us, you know, we're sort of a young rabbinic couple. Our main focus here was really sort of working on, on bringing young people to the shul, and to see all these young families leave was really painful, right? These were our friends and people we had brought in in the last few years. And then sort of everyone's like, goodbye, we're heading to Florida. Um, so that was that was painful. I think, you know, it really emphasized to me the, the importance of the pastoral role, right? People felt like, who are they going to call in April, right? When we, we, it was such a bizarre time and we just felt, you weirdly felt God's presence and the strangeness of that moment. And people would just call and say, I need to talk. I need to, I need to like work this through. Why is God doing this to us? What's the meaning in this? What am I supposed to find from this? And everyone had a different reaction. Uh, so, you know, my husband always says the one thing he can be calm about is that his job will never be, you know, autom- automized. It will never, he'll never be taken over by AI because we'll always need that sort of uh, pastoral support. Um, what have I learned? Uh, you know, this is actually what I'm writing about in Vogue, which is really the importance of in-person connection, uh, which goes back to our original conversation about outrage online. I think uh, the importance of gathering in person without our screens and being able to sit with people who are different from us uh, and have different views on politics and other things as well, uh, That that is so essential for societal health and and i think that synagogues and pastoral you know clergy have the opportunity to really provide that for a community well i if it uh, you know you hit the nail on the head that's the impetus behind this podcast where you know rich and i disagree on i would say 85 percent of our views uh but that sounds you know, we, low <laughs> but we like to have an informed conversation and, you know, Rich is a patriot and, and, and loves his country and loves his people. And, and so, you know, we're, we're trying to work on that too. Um, and I love uh, you. And oh, I love man, you, Jerry. We're having all the feelings. Um, so with, with this outrage, we've seen a proliferation of public apologies, uh, it feels like every day somebody's apologizing for something, right? We had this episode that, that you're involved in with, with a fashion blogger who apologized. What is the role of public apology and has it been cheapened and is it still important? And, and you know, where do we go from here? Or, or when should we learn to accept apologies? I think it's been cheapened. I think it's been cheapened and I think there's also a double standard about who has to apologize and who doesn't. Um, I mean, Let's like look at this specific instance of this podcast, right? For as an example, the podcast host of this was a host of the Cutting Room Floor, which was a sort of, as I understand, a, a high end kind of avant garde fashion podcast. Um, brought in a a Jewish fashion influencer named Leandro Medine Cohen, who had been canceled last year for. Uh, 
for firing four or laying off four employees, one of whom was black. Uh, and Medine Cohen went on what she describes as a summer of learning, I think, or a year of learning. And she apologized and she did all the, you know, as we say in Hebrew, Ashamnu Bagadnu Gazalnu. She she did the public atonement uh, for her ways, I think, you know, pretty blatantly. Uh, we can have a conversation about whether we think it's genuine or not, but she went through the moves. Um, and this, you know, Rachel Almandi invited her to be on this podcast recently, about a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, last week. I'm losing track of time. And uh, and on the podcast, she sort of, she pushes her on, on this and very obviously makes it clear that she doesn't even take, she doesn't accept her apology. She doesn't even believe that Medina Cohen has learned anything about her level of what she describes as privilege and entitlement. Uh, and of course, the podcast really derailed and it went into this whole sort of conversation about Jewish American princesses who get their nose jobs and their keratin treatments to sort of blend into what she describes as white society. Um, and and I, I listened to this and was horrified. And then I searched social media for, I was curious, has anyone said anything about this? I actually listened to the entire podcast, which I almost never do, but I was just sorry. <laughs> Except for Jewish Insider. No one can ever put it down, especially our yeah. two-hour episode with Ron That's right. Um, <laughs> you know, I never listened to the whole thing, but I was kind of morbidly fascinated by this. And I took notes on it as I was listening, and I realized that almost no one was posting anything horrible, anything you know, cr- critical about how horrible it was. The whole, all the posts were sort of celebrating how great it is, and people were posting about how they were laughing, they were cackling at this Jewish woman's privilege and, and wealth. Um, so I, so I took it on and I posted a whole thread about it and how, how problematic this was with quotes and everything. Um, this ended up, the podcast was temporarily, uh, removed and then it was re-uploaded without the sort of most problematic quotes after that. Um, without a correction, without a note to say we had to change this because people had some legitimate grievances with how things were said or something, nothing, right? Um, so that's sort of a double standard about, you know, how, who has to apologize and who does not, right? The podcast host later told Business of Fashion, um, the publication, that she, you know, apologized because she realizes that the way that she framed things was perhaps, you know, sort of trafficking in anti-Semitic tropes, essentially. But, uh, but she still stands by her statement that Jews are able to assimilate into white culture, Right. So like she didn't even really, she just doubled down on what her whole point was initially. Um, so I, I find it really troubling that uh, that specific episode really sort of made, made me see clearly that there is a double standard. Who is allowed to, who has to apologize, who does not, who can do a half apology. Right. Someone else tweeted at me that apparently she had apologized in a, in a podcast that's only available to her Patreon community. So I'm like, oh, so the apology you have to pay for to hear, right? The original, the original anti-Semitism, no problem. You know, that's great. Um, so I think it's, it's the fact that there is a double standard actually shows you that it's cheap and that I don't know how much it even matters at this point. I think a lot of it is, you know, it's, it's obviously it's performative, like the outrage we talked about. All right. I think we're going to go to the lightning round. Uh-oh. Um, this is where we like to have a little, oh, no, every, every, everybody gets it. Don't, Don't worry. worry. Everybody. everybody yeah. 
Um, all right. So we're going to ask you a couple of quick questions uh, to kind of get a little bit of a sense of, uh, of you know, your kishkis here. What is your favorite Yiddish word or phrase and profanity is totally allowable? But it's not allowed to be kishka now because he. he uh, yeah. Gave yeah. Parents, so I, gave I, I gave you kishka. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody has used that. <laughs> okay. No profanities. I'm a Rebison. Just saying. Okay. All right. All right. But that's, that's your, that's your rule. Not ours. Right. Uh, my favorite expression is definitely that man thinks and God laughs. Man thinks and God laughs. Um, that is like literally the mantra of 2020 and probably, and you know, all of life. So I, I use it very often. Speaking of uh, orthodoxy in modern film, I think that was used in Stranger Among Us with Melanie Ooh, Griffith. Good pull, Rich. So that, that is pull. a, yeah, we can IMDB that later, but that was a, that was a movie of my youth. Um, okay. Next one, Rich. You want to? You want? You have the next lightning. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, favorite Jewish food or restaurant doesn't have to be New York. Other 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 places other than New York and Israel for Jewish or food. Or could be a recipe. Maybe a favorite recipe. recipe. Yeah, we'll allow that. Favorite Jewish restaurant. There's so. Many. Or or recipe. recipe. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat and give you two answers. My favorite Jewish restaurant is Allen B. And. Uh, in Brooklyn. It's fabulous. They invited me to their sort of ridiculous 12th course or something tasting uh, pre-COVID, and I went, and it was very much worth my evening, albeit every single course had a different alcohol, a different type of wine associated with it, which was not so good. <laughs> By the end of the evening, we could barely drive home. And if I might, it might a quick message to the owners uh, here at uh, limited liability podcast we are happy to take that 12 courses as yeah, well and, yeah, and give you a review here on the podcast absolutely. anytime you want us we can be Wait, rich what do you think about live like live podcasting eating 12 courses i think this will become like the jewish food network yeah yeah, yeah. We, all right we need a um, more video i think we need to see the colors yeah. of those yeah but did you have another one did we cut I you off another one, one thing. Um, I actually, I come from a Russian Jewish background. My parents are refugees from the Soviet Union. So I grew up with Soviet Jewish food, uh, not the typical kugel and cholin. Um, but so I grew up on something called alivye, which is like an egg salad mayonnaise situation that I still enjoy to this day. Ooh, that sounds really good. Okay. Uh, if you share with us the recipe, we will get that in daily kickoff. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. Um, it's, that is probably something nobody has had except for Russian Jewish families. Um, what is the last book you've read or something that you highly recommend that you've read recently? I actually just read this last week and it is still haunting me. Uh, it is a novel called The Passenger by Ulrich Alexander Boschwitz. Uh, and it is a novel written by a German Jew uh, that was published in the 30s. Uh, and he actually died uh, on a boat uh, as a I think traveling from Australia to the UK pre before uh, during the war, um, and the book is describing a sort of very assimilated bourgeoisie Berlin Jew, and you know how he starts to understand that he's being hunted, and he decides to just get on a train, and the whole book is his train trips around Germany, him trying to escape the country, not being able to get out. Uh, it's a very uh, sort of very prophetic book. It, it, it was published before the war, which is kind of shocking to read. Uh, and I thought really beautifully written. And final lightning round question. So you have an article coming out in Vogue. Are you the first Rebitson ever to write for Vogue.com? You know, my husband 
comment to me this morning. I don't know. I haven't looked in, into the history, but we'll have to look, do a search through the archives to see if that is true. Okay, we'll, we'll search and we will report back in our next episode. Sounds good. Avatar Chizik Goldschmidt, thank you so much for joining us on the Limited Liability Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Wow, that's some pretty heady stuff. Definitely uh, making me wrap my head around this role of apology and where where it belongs, when it's authentic, and when we should be, you know, dismissing apologies that are not heartfelt. Uh, I take her point. I mean, it has become cheapened, and sort of who is expected to apologize and when, and the timing. And it, I think we also know that a lot of people have agents, and it's scripted, it's PR, and it's all part of a, a script. You follow the script correctly, you're, you know. It all goes away, depending on what the sin was, you know, so, you know, so to speak. Um, but no, great conversation, uh, a real sort of rising intellectual influencer on social media and in and, and news outlets. You can find her latest piece in Vogue. It's great. Um, and uh, yeah, great conversation, Jared. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because that's the best recommendation. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.